Welcome back, everybody, to the Read Connected podcast. Today, we have a special guest who is a tennis coach in Falmouth, Massachusetts, which is on Cape Cod. I will introduce him by way of story. In March of 2020, the world put up a closed Please Come Back Later sign, otherwise known as the global pandemic. It was a time of uncertainty, isolation, and stress. And as a clinical and sports psychologist, I had to take the advice I was giving to my patients and clients. I had to reflect on my own needs and how I can take care of myself. So in moments of clarity, I thought to myself three things. One, I need creativity. So I dove into writing songs. Two, I felt nostalgic. So I made a music playlist with every possible song I've ever liked in my entire life from every genre. And guess how many songs I have on the playlist now? 13,000. Mm, that's overshooting. Three, <laughs> 3,800. Okay, close, close. And three, I said to myself, hey, I need tennis back in my life. Tennis, tennis, tennis. And as the world gradually opened up and tennis became a viable option, I didn't find just any tennis instructor. I found the one and only Kevin Peace of the Kevin Peace School of Tennis in Falmouth, Massachusetts. And before I introduce Kevin as a special guest today here in the Boston Cybersound Studio, I want Kevin to know how appreciative I am uh, that I found him to bring tennis back into my life at that time. It made a profound difference in living through COVID years and beyond. So I really want to thank him for that. And since joining his tennis clinics, I have significantly upped my tennis game. But more importantly than anything, Kevin really makes tennis fun and interesting and educational. And he's so, he's so attentive. He's such an excellent teacher. He's very funny in the subtlest ways. And uh, he's always encouraging of my improvements. His tennis clinics really feel like a community. He makes everyone feel a part of that community. And Kevin is really a unique individual. And I think today's conversation is going to be engaging, insightful, and a lot of fun for us. So Kevin has a BS in sports management from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He was part of the varsity tennis team. He held national rankings. He won the USPTA Coach Pro and Player of the Year Award in New England. He is certified as a member of the USPTA and USPTR and USTA high performance staff and Wilson advisory staff. He's just a great guy. We're so happy to have him. And uh, he drove all the way up from Cape Cod, took him two hours in traffic. Um, and he was rewarded with a bagel from Cape Cod Bagels <laughs> to his surprise. <laughs> Not expecting that to have that in Boston, but the bagels are amazing. So. Kevin, we're so happy to have you today, and uh, this is going to be a great opportunity for us to talk about tennis. Well, thanks. <clears throat> thanks for having me here, Jerry and, and Alexis. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, my goal um, is in tennis is to get bageled from the bagel shop, <laughs> but not bageled on the tennis court. You know, in tennis, 6-0, 6-0 would be the double bagel. But, uh, you know, the Cape Cod bagel, you know, brought up here from from Falmouth was really quite a quite a gift to me. And, you know, I, I was just so touched by it. It was amazing. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So there's always going to be a little tennis inference in, in most of what I say, because it's been a big part of my life. But it's been great meeting you and your family. And, um, you know, you said some very kind things. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, what what can I say that, you know, you ask me a question, I'll just go with it. Yeah, for sure, Kevin. You know, I think, you know, um, you know, I'm, I work with athletes and I do work with a lot of tennis players in my sports psychology practice. So I think one of the aspects it would be great to hear from is for us to have a conversation about, you know, the mentality that goes into tennis and growing and learning and becoming better and the mental side of it. But uh, we want to hear from you too. You know, what is your journey with tennis? You know, you've been around the block uh, quite a few times and, you know, you have a whole family that is 
um, just ingrained in tennis and coaching. So we would love to hear about your journey. You know, this season, season two is about people's individual journeys. Everybody's journey is different. Um, you know, there's no, uh, there's no better or worse in terms of journeys. Everybody is unique to them and there's lessons along the way. There's uh, growth, there's, you know, really impacting people's lives in ways that doesn't always get noticed. And I know you have impacted my life. I'm sure you've impacted many people's lives along the way and your family has as well. So, you know, tell us about how you and your family really got involved in tennis. Uh, you know, co a coach is a special role in people's lives, especially with youth. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I think it, for me, it would have to go back to, you know, even before I was a coach, you know, what, what pointed me in that direction. And when I look back at my childhood, one of the key points in my life was that um, back then they used to cut in Little League, right? They used to cut players. So it was a 12 and under team, you know, X amount of players can make this team. And I was told we have too many pitchers. You know, we, we don't need another pitcher. And I'm a, get, get, this is how insane that was. I'm a lefty. He kicked me off. And in the minors, I was great. Now I get out there to the tryout. He starts to get me. I'm, I'm throwing lefty sliders, okay? And he says, well, now you got to throw overhand. I go, well, you know, in tryouts, really? You know, I'm going to change my slider. Now I'm going to throw overhand. I mean, <laughs> of course, you know, things are a little different today. But, you know, listen, it was actually a good thing. Because mm -hmm. when I did make that, I said, you know what? Right next to the, to, uh, the baseball field was, which is a sport that I love, baseball, I started playing tennis. I mean, I literally just went over to the courts. I mean, it wasn't like within one minute, but, you know, that summer I started playing, showing up, and I'd hit with anybody, and I fell in love with the game and, you know, had a pretty pretty successful early on experience. The first tournament I played, I, I, I made it to the finals. And no, there weren't just two people. Um, <laughs> I could see people say, how many people were in that tournament? <laughs> well, it was a Cape Cod tournament. At that time, more people were signing up, but... Um, so that really launched my, you know, interest. And I just loved hitting a tennis ball more than anything. I think when I look back, uh, you know, hearing the sound of a tennis ball off, off a racket was an amazing sound. It was like so catchy. It's like, wow, I just, I have to do that, you know? And it's not like you, you sat around and thought about it. It like chose you, right? So that, uh, and I've tried to deviate from that. I've tried to leave that or... You know, you know, at times I said, well, what are we going to do for a real job? You know, what are you going to do? Well, to me, it's always been a real job. I've never looked at it that way. Uh, you know, coaching, um, you know, I think Red Albach said this. He said, uh, just do what you do best. Mm. Right? Now, that's a great quote. Just do what you do best. I mean, that sums it up. Uh, you know, what you do best. Now, that's, uh, in a way, I think sometimes that you get chosen by that. You, you, it, it, it comes to you. You just got to see it. You know, and once you see it, then you can follow that path. So that's how I started. And then, of course, in my family, it was a rule that everyone had to play. <laughs> At least try it. Now, I wasn't a parent that, uh, I mean, I did push. I, I admit that. Um, but not to the point where there was too much crying. <laughs> Maybe a little <laughs> once in a while. Um, that's normal, though. Yeah, a little bit. But uh, overall, I mean, I've got... Um, three kids today that are tennis professionals, that are coaches. And in no way did I tell them you have to be a tennis coach. That was something they chose on their own. Mm. So. I would imagine that the love of the game that you exude also just shine through your household and, and spread to your kids too, right? There's, there's uh, something about that finding the thing that you're really good at and following it that becomes a passion and a love that's just 
hard to ignore. Contagious. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's a great observation, Alexis. I think you're right. I think uh, if you really love something and you have an interest, and if someone else in your family has that interest, it's natural to want to share that. Mm. That doesn't mean you force them. You know, I didn't force that interest, but that was one. It was also an opportunity, right? Because I'm at a club, so I could pick the kids up after school, bring them over to the club. They could do their homework there. They could hit balls. I put in my kids, I would put in all the classes, you know, whether they were beginner classes or advanced classes, I'd have them there with me. So they would either help or demonstrate. But even when they were in those, um, you know, say starter classes and they were a higher level, they were learning too. Mm -hmm. Because they're naturally when you teach, you learn or you Mm -hmm. reinforce, right? Mm -hmm. And when you express it physically, orally, emotionally, in all the ways possible, um, it really sticks with you. So I always felt that, you know, making them a total part of what I do uh, was something that was natural and just came. There's there's something that's really cool about tennis in particular. I think it's it's a sport that now cuts across cultures and socioeconomic classes. And like, literally anybody can play. There's so many free courts available publicly around the U.S. And for us as a family, it was a, a sport and a game that, Pretty much anybody at any age could play, Mm. right? Which was really neat. Felt like a a really natural place to commune, to come together and enjoy something mostly outdoors where you can play, be competitive, kind of get out of your own head and just kind of put it all on the court, but also enjoy that time together. So I imagine, I can only imagine what you and your kids and family were like growing up when they were growing up and playing together. Right. Sounds like we've had some similar experiences in that area. Yeah. Uh, But what you said about enjoying it with your family, that too. One of the things I enjoy about the game is just hitting the ball back and forth. Yeah. You know, that doesn't mean I haven't played competitively. Um, I think I've lost a little bit of that intense competitive uh, spirit. I do like to win, but I enjoy more the experience of going out, hitting the ball and having a good time. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, for the vast majority of the population, that's going to be the case. Yeah. Uh, whether you're a super player or what. I mean, how many people can make a full-time living playing tennis on the tour? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's a very elite group, mm-hmm. and it's not an easy one to break into. Mm-hmm. Huge sacrifice, too. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Huge sacrifice, everything, and have the talent. Mm. So, you know, it's, 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 I would say it's as hard as being a rock star. Yeah. You know, how many rock stars are there? That's true. Or, you know, music stars, what other genre you pick. I mean, there's only going to be a few at the top, the very, very elite performing class, right? I think that's the cool thing too. Win or lose, competitive or not, just mm-hmm. just hitting the ball back and forth to each other. And yeah. you know, that's where I live these days. My serve is not that great. But, <laughs> but just that in and of itself is is just a great exercise, both mentally and physically. And again, it brings together, like Jerry started off the episode talking about this sense of community that sometimes gets lost in the busyness and most definitely in the pandemic to be able to bring people together and share a sport that, you know, requires skill, obviously, but but maybe not a ton of skill to still get something out of it. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I do, actually, I do know. When I say I don't know, I, I guess I'm politefully disagreeing. Well, that was a setup. Yeah, it was. <laughs> did you set me up because you a did a, you did a good job <laughs> with that? Yeah. No, uh, I, I feel that with tennis that uh, it, it is a it's a difficult skill. Yeah. To learn. Um, that being said, I think initially when you first take pick up the game, that you have 
you can you can improve very quickly with some good instruction. Your learning curve is quite high in the beginning, yeah, but I then agree. to get a little bit better, you've got to put significantly more time in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so then you can start looking at the things like the ten thousand hours or the you know eighteen minutes a day for a year. You know produces. <laughs> Um, you know, a hundred hours, you know, what, what is it, you know, that secret number? I mean, I don't know if you can put a number on it like that. I think certainly you would say it's a lot of time and dedication, yeah. but I think tennis is a, a huge skill sport. And, um, you know, I think it, it, people can get frustrated with it, but I think you have to remember, just be patient. If you enjoy hitting the ball, I've never really seen anyone that doesn't like hitting a ball. Mm. Yeah. Right. So, it's meditative. Mm. You know, that's the best thing. You just hit a ball back and forth. It's meditative. I don't think, yeah, you want to improve. You may think of a couple of things you're trying to do when you hit, but when you get into the rally, you're just hitting it back and forth. You're just, it's, it's meditative. I, I worked with this girl, very high level national ranked player and said, you know, what is your favorite part? We got to get back to just enjoying the favorite part of tennis to kind of relieve the pressure. She goes, I just love crushing the ball. <laughs> it's that feeling you're talking about. There's nothing like it, you know. Yeah, hitting a really hard shot, you know, that goes in, that's deep in the court and solid and has a lot of pace. You know, I've always enjoyed that myself. <laughs> um, but they don't always go in. That, but, right, uh, yeah. you know, that one that does go in keeps you coming back, right? Yeah, so. yeah. And we'll get back to some of the sports psychology stuff I'm interested to talk to you about. But let's go back to your story. So, you know, you talked about how... You know, uh, baseball didn't work out and mm -hmm. you were resilient to not just give up on sports altogether, not just to kind of wallow in it, but to say, you know, obviously you had to grieve that and say this, you know, I'm, not, I'm disappointed, but I'm going to move on to something else and to and, and enjoy it. So, um, you know, that's a great lesson for kids to grow up with as well. Um, and so how did you end up getting into coaching after you got into playing? Like, what, where, how did that transition happen for you? Okay, so let's go back to, you know, I'm, I'm, on, I'm at the court. I'm hitting against the backboard, hitting with anyone that comes to the park. There was no pickleball back then. Mm. Okay, so tennis courts, you could just go and play tennis. You didn't have to fight the pickleball <laughs> players. Okay, but don't get me started because I have my opinion about that. I am a pickleball Pickle, coach. Pickleball is a trigger word now. Yeah, <laughs> it's a trigger word. <laughs> for me, um, for I can sure. go down that path and I, can, I, I think I can do it eloquently. But I'm not going to do it right now because I want to talk about what you, you asked. So... Uh, I got, to, I was playing more and more with the kids and my goal was to make the high school team. Mm. So I didn't get cut as a freshman and we had a good team, a uh, very good team. I didn't start, but I did play in a, maybe a match or two varsity match. Um, I had performed well on the team. There's a lot of kids on that team. And then my sophomore year, I started getting into the matches around the time that I started playing. I was also, we are the club that I'm teaching at now opened up an indoor club. And I loved it so much that um, I convinced my parents to let me take a few private lessons from the local pro when the lessons were like $14 a half an hour. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that time when that was a lot of money for us and our family. But, you know, I think maybe in my four years there, I may have got six or eight lessons. But I became good friends with the pro. And I said, you know, mm -hmm. is there anything I can do to help out here with these lessons? He goes, sure. So we had these beginner groups and I would be feeding balls. Hmm. And I'll, I remember once I was feeding the ball and uh, the balls, you know, uh, he says, feed them, you know, two backhands or whatever it was. And we had these lines going. And of course, what I did was I hit them the ball and they hit it and then I hit it back to them. And we started to play and then I could see the student kind of 
getting excited about it. He goes, no, no, just feed the ball. Don't, don't, don't rally it. Because, you know, you, you have, a, as a coach, you have to have a plan. You can't mm-hmm. have a renegade helper. <laughs> but, but I never forget, it's like, you know, but when, what always stuck with me is that how, how much people really love hitting the ball back and forth, that you can't forget that. You know, so as a coach, I think as I've aged, I've always tried to add that. So I worked my way into that and I got into uh, uh, the first real experience teaching on was a, a counselor at a Catholic camp called Cathedral Camp. It's in Lakeville. So I went to the camp and uh, they put me on a specialty as a tennis instructor. They never had a tennis department. So I was helping out uh, doing that as an activity. And then the camp closed. Uh, to become just a day camp, and I couldn't go anymore because we lived too far. So it broke my heart. I wanted, I was so upset. So then I, I contacted a, a local a guy in town, and he was the pro at Minot Yacht Club, and I helped him out. And then, so from that on, from then on, I just got involved in teaching at clubs. How cool is that, though, that you had this like passion for coaching at a young age? Yeah. Um, yeah. People don't know this about me, but when I came out of high school, um, even my senior year, I got into coaching, and it was just like a passion. Like I really enjoyed that. Not not everybody was into it at a young age. Um, and for you to like, I just want to point out how unique that is. You know, not everybody people want to play and they want to compete. Um, I think you know we kind of we have that similarity in that way. We both had a penchant for wanting to coach and to support other people. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. I I guess that's true. I think at the age of fourteen, I was coaching. Mm. Almost around the same time, and it was a few years earlier that I was getting into it. Um, but that aspect became more prominent as I went through college, and I, I got a degree in sport management. I interned as a tennis professional um, as part of my degree program, and uh, you know, it just seemed like a natural thing to do. But I was definitely more in the teaching end of it, and I think you know I've, I've made a good career of it. I'm, I'm always happy with that decision. Um, you know, playing's great, but, you know, you don't have to be the number one player in the world to be a good coach, mm. right? You know, that doesn't mean that there aren't some great coaches that have been great players. That's certainly not true because there have been, and I could name them. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think, what is it? Mr. Holland's Opus. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the movie? Well, Mr. It was, I, Richard Dreyfus was in it, and he was a music teacher, and his his life ended up being the unfinished symphony mm. that, you know, he wanted to complete. But his real calling was all the students that he had affected mm. um, as a music teacher in his town. So that was his real talent. So, you know, um, you know, if you're not going to be a rock star, maybe you can be something else in the music industry that is really good for you. That's maybe even better than a rock star. So you don't know, you know, I don't know. That's amazing. I mean, look at the Miami Heat coach. His name's Eric Spolstra. Mm-hmm. Like, he wasn't like a big basketball star. He's one of the best coaches in the league right now because from what I remember about when he started coaching, he was all in. He wanted to learn. He wanted to be the best coach ever. And he's doing great right now, you know? So if you have a calling to coach, go for it. I think you're right. Yeah, I think it, it comes down to following your what, what feels right to you and you seem to have an affinity for. It picks you, I think, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. It picks you. <laughs> Even when you try to fight against it and it, do something else. Well said, it Alexis. It brings you right back. Yeah, it brings you back. Yeah. You know? And, and you know, Kevin, you have perspective too. And um, I think when you're younger, it's good to think ahead to, you know, what do you want your life to, what do you want to look back on in terms of how you lived? And 
what you contributed at the end of the day. And uh, I think the earlier you can think about that, sometimes the better so that you can look back on your life and say, I, I made a difference. And, you know, I have patients tell me, really appreciate how much you taught me and how you're making the world a better place one person at a time. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. I think stuff like that, you know, it's, and that's not stuff you're going to see on ESPN all mm. the time, you know. Um, wow, that's incredible. That's a great story. Well, yeah. you know, I'm only sharing it because I know you have stories like that too. I've seen kids, you know, come out of your clinics and the parents are kind of there to, you know, to have the kid come out and to take them home. And I've seen, you know, before we have our clinic and I see the smile on their face and the parents' face. So, you know, that's, that's a special thing, Kevin, you know, it really is. Oh, thanks, Jerry. You know, it's, uh, I'm lucky, you know, I feel lucky. You know, I guess that's where gratitude comes in, where you feel you, um, you can do something with people that, that they enjoy and that you enjoy. It's never hard going to work in the morning, mm. you know, for me. I, I really look forward to, you know, getting my coffee, get my bagel, get ready, get in there, get things going. And it's never a chore because I look forward to it. You know what you do really well, Kevin? I, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to understand people as much as I can. And you, you have the ability to stay very present when you're coaching. And I think that's why you're so funny. <laughs> <laughs> what? I, I don't know. It, it may turn some people off if you don't get it, you know. And I, sometimes I, I'm, a little, I'm a little out there in the humor, but I always try to pull it in. I think I'm trying to, I don't know if I'm trying to make myself relax or I'm trying to make the student relax. I don't know why, but... Um, if I can get them to smile a little bit, mm. um, I find that they do better. And, and, and as a coach, I've, I've, like, if I can give a tip and then I'll have the students start hitting, then I'm, I might switch the subject for a second. Mm-hmm. That's not about the task at hand, but still feed the ball. They start doing it. Mm-hmm. It's the strangest thing. <laughs> it, it, it's like they will actually complete the task when I'm not, you know, and then some people say, geez, I wish I could do this when I'm playing. You know, why can't I do this when I'm playing? I'm doing it. I can only do this here with you. And I'm thinking, now, you, wouldn't you think the opposite would be true when you're with a coach and someone's watching you? But they feel, you know, relaxed enough that they can execute the skill. So I'm thinking, okay, well, it's working for this student. So that's well, good. if you're being present, you're helping them to be present too. You know, regardless if it's a joke or not, you're present with them. Yeah. When you're present with someone, you're grounding them, helping them be present. And to your point, that's the most important thing in tennis. Every tennis player I've ever worked with, it's always one of the fundamentals is help yourself to be present when you're playing tennis. There's so many expectations. There's so much pressure. People watching, college coaches watching, this or that. And it's so much about learning how to see the big picture, ground yourself in the moment, and to be fully in it and to show up the way you want to show up in that moment. So I think, you know, there's there's a subtlety to what you're doing that I think is really more important than maybe realized for sure. I would say that that's probably the most important advice in life in general and in showing up in relationships, showing up in school, showing up in pretty much everything you do. But it, But in sport, in tennis, when it's such an individualized sport especially, because when you're out there on the court and you are by yourself, it is just your own voice in your head or the other external factors that are impacting you. And, and in my work, it's a little different than sports psychology, but so many of the same skills apply. You know, I always talk to my students about how sometimes they need to distract themselves from the distractions. And the distractions are often their own self-doubt, their own worry, their own trying to be 
so perfect and specific in their approach that they lose track of that moment. And that's where sometimes it doesn't go well. And it's so funny. I have a student, a, a sixth grader who said to me, you know, sometimes when I overthink things, it doesn't go well. And she said, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when I'm trying to shoot a free throw in basketball, <laughs> you know, sometimes when I overthink it, I miss, but I just want to swish it. And when I swish it, it feels so good. <laughs> and usually that's when I'm not really thinking about it. I just let it flow. I let it go. So you, in your comedy, in your creating comfort for your students, is really allowing for them to let go of all that extra stuff. And go, going back to what you were saying before, Jared's like, you know, that's why people show up to play sports, especially, right? You want to let go of everything else and just be in a moment, at least, I guess, when you're not trying to be professional <laughs> for yeah. us who are novice, you know. Even for high level athletes, I've heard athletes Same tell me, idea. you know, when I get on the rink or the, the mm. gym or the court or the field, like that's my state, that's my place to get mm. away from life and to just be free again because life could be stressful. It's, a, yeah. it's kind of that safe haven to, to enjoy it, even at high level. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, you know, I think at the mostly at the level that I'm working with now, um, it's not by and large at the higher level of junior competition. Years ago, our, our high school team in Falmouth, this was in 2007, uh, our team won the state title, Division mm. One, which is pretty impressive for a little school out on mm. Cape Cod, where if you draw a circle around our radius... 15-minute radius, most of the population is bluefish, right? <laughs> so that being said, you're lucky to get someone that plays tennis. Forget about win a state title. Um, but the work ethic that, that went into that for those kids, and, and, and one of them was my son that was on that team, mm. um, it, the work ethic, there was the, it was the summation of a lot of work that got to that point. Mm -hmm. Um, and today, you know, for parents to take kids around New England and compete, mm -hmm. I don't see it as much. And I don't see it as much in other clubs in the area either. It's not just our little club, but, um, I think today kids have a lot of other things pulling at them in this country, um, mm -hmm. be it other sports, other activities, and you don't see the kids specializing. Which is what you'd almost have to do. You would have to do to become really great at the sport at a young age. You'd have to put a lot of time in and train year round. And I'd imagine pretty early on, you need to make that decision, right, to be yeah. able to get to that level. Not, I would not, say, not always, yeah. though. I do see athletes who, mm. you know, they're they're a bit older. They switch sports and they achieve mm. at a high level. But yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of like Carlos Alcaraz right now, number one in in men's tennis. Yeah, that's and true. And the commitment. A lot of people are thinking about it. Carlos Alcaraz right now. I'm sure what, they what are. a great player! <laughs> oh my you know? goodness. Yeah. Um, but, At the time of this recording, you know, we're during French Open times, so right. they're out there and Roland Garros playing at the moment. Right, and the amount of work that these people put in to get to that yeah. position. But even the, what about the people that are at the top of say? New England level, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. the amount of work they have to put in. It's still a lot of work. And the dedication and the sacrifice right. even their families I, put in too. So I, I'm just saying, I, I think I see a trend where it's it's not as much as, as it once was. Mm. Um, but what we do is try to get kids ready to play high school tennis. And that's that's our goal. And we tell people, you know, what's the magic formula? Well, if you come to us when you're fairly young and you come in a half an hour a week, 
and just keep showing up, you're going to make your high school team. And I had a girl who did this years ago, and, and she hit with her mom a little bit outside the practice. She ended up walking on at Williams. Mm. It was number six. Yeah. Wow. And she, pl- she, she went uh, 19, and her name, was, her name was Betsy Todd. She went 19 and two mm-hmm. um, as a senior. And I thought that was impressive. She didn't really play that many New England tournaments either. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was incredible. And then she went on and she walked on Williams. So, um, you know, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to play college tennis, if that's something you want to do, there's a place you can go to play, whether it be on a varsity team or even a club sport. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you love the sport and yeah. you feel, enjoy it. And uh, to your point too, um, you know, the, the kids who are on the, uh, the circuits and doing the tournaments, they may not even be part of a team. And sometimes they play on their high school team, but a lot of times they don't if they're at such a high level. So there's a team atmosphere and a team experience that if you get to college, like you said, it could be on any level, highest right. level, like lower level, it doesn't matter. Being part of a team is such an important aspect and you don't always get that in tennis or other individual sports. So it could be something to strive for. I want to be on a college team. I want that camaraderie. I want that, right. that, that positive experience for sure. At the very least, though, I see kids coming in that are taking lessons that maybe aren't the most gifted athletes. And it gives them something to do. Mm-hmm. That they, they can come on that court and they, I, I hear from parents who say, geez, you know, my son or my daughter really looks forward to these tennis lessons. Like that's, that's something they enjoy. Now, you know, maybe that's improving their hand-eye coordination. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's improving their spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, maybe things aren't always going as great as school at school with mm-hmm. the other kids. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I think, uh, it does give kids an opportunity across all spectrums of level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it, it comes down to, do you love it? Do you love the sport? I mean, it can be competitive. Tennis can be competitive at any level. That's the thing. Totally. Yeah. Right. There's no such thing as a, a good level or a bad level. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't like that throwing yeah. those kind of terms out because, um, because then you become associated with, well, I'm a good player. I'm a bad player. I'm a good person. I'm a, you, when you start, Equating that to your value as a person, how well you play your tennis, that is not a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Now you're speaking our language, Kevin. That's the way we think about things. <laughs> is that the way you think about things? It, it's too extreme. It's all or nothing, right? And yeah. when we fall into those extremes, we, we lose the joy. We lose the purpose. We lose the experience. Right. Yeah. But I wanted to go back and, and ask you a couple questions because you brought up some points that I, I'm curious about. I'm sure our listeners would be too. But before I do, I would be remiss from a developmental perspective, not to mention what you just brought up about the hand-eye coordination. You know, I think I think tennis at, at even the very basic level of just, you know, lobbing a ball to even a young kid with some sort of racket to be able to hit it builds up a lot of these physicality components of how we increase those skills from both a, a physical, biophysical, and neurological perspective. So even just doing that activity, even at a young age, engaging and interacting that there is no right or wrong as you're just trying to hit a ball is actually a really great place to start. And when I, when I mentioned that maybe not too much skills involved, I didn't really mean that. I meant that like literally anybody can try in some way who has the physical capacity to be able to hold a racket in their hand and, and, and swing it. And I think there's something nice to be said about that. So from a developmental physical perspective, there's a lot to be gained from you know, even just tossing a ball and, and trying to hit it with a tennis racket, which could potentially turn into more or maybe not. But I think the action and the activity is is very valuable. 
Well said. I, you know, when you when I see these kids come out that, you know, the first day, maybe they swing and they miss. I mean, miss the ball. Or maybe they're starting to get the swing and they miss every fourth ball. But their misses become fewer as time goes on. And they do develop the skill. It, 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 you hit on the nail on the head when you said that it goes beyond the hand-eye coordination. There's something, the mind and body is becoming intertwined with that too. Mm-hmm. That's really important for kids yeah. to experience. And to see the progression of the misses becoming contact, becoming accurate with some kind of you know, skill building over time. It's really nice to be able to see that progression. And I imagine, as I've experienced, even a swing and a miss can turn into a wonderful opportunity to share a laugh or a joke or oh, sharing a laugh. something yeah, to get it's through very, it. <laughs> it's very important to do that, that as a coach, uh, that you don't bear too much. Well, you can't bear a negative emotion in front of the student mm-hmm. when they do that. Um, because then you're owning it too much. Yeah. Mm. You've got to, you've got to let that mm-hmm. go and laugh with them or, or make them feel at ease or, you know, one of the things my daughter and I said, you know, we, we, we picked up this phrase. We'll say, uh, that's not the real you. Mm. That's not the real you. And then we kind of laugh and we go on because it, it's like, I, I'm not, I don't see that. I didn't see that. Yeah. You know, and you didn't either. And we just let it go. We don't get overly, we don't try to, you know, get into a lot of correction or you need to do this or that because we know we've seen the skill performed. And once you see the skill performed once, that's the aha moment. And then to get that to repeat again and again, that's being consistent. And when you become consistent at repeating a skill over and over, that's when you become better and you become good. Yeah. Right? That's so great. It's not about doing a lot of complicated things. It's about being able to do a few things exceptionally well over time. Totally. That's such great life advice, not just for (laughs) tennis. (laughs) Just a few things exceptionally well. Yeah. You'll do just fine. Yeah. You can't do everything well. And you don't have to do everything well. Yeah. But if you become, like you said earlier, if you become good at shooting threes, Mm -hmm. I mean, really good. You can make a pretty good living at that, right? <laughs> like if you go, if you went on the court, Alexis, and you never missed a three that you ever threw up, tell me the NBA wouldn't be interested in having you come aboard, right? My family right now <laughs> listening to this is laughing because I hit very few shots in basketball. But when I did, I celebrated well because I was very proud of myself. But um, but you're right. And, and, you know, there's so much packed into this. But I think even, you know, in those moments where things don't go well, I think this is, you know, bringing it back and and zooming out a little bit for a moment. This is a big struggle of a lot of young people, even a lot of adults right now that feel like if I can't do this perfectly well, and Jerry and I did a whole episode on perfectionism, Mm -hmm. then what's the point? And I think, you know, the levity you bring to your coaching and to your clinics, and though Jerry's experienced more than I have, um, and in my few times of of being a part of that work, you bring this levity that just opens up opportunities for players on the court that maybe they wouldn't have had before. And I appreciate your your comments about being a coach and letting go of it, you know, because it's not about, and I say this all the time in my work as an executive function coach and educational therapist, like, this isn't about me. 
No, no. I'm here to guide you. No, right. This is about your experience, and, and there's going to be good and bad. There's going to be ups and downs. We're, we're just a guide. Yeah, that's it. We're just a guide. That's it. Right. But uh, you made a good point about, uh, you know, the level of a player. When you see them making that mistake once, twice, this is I'm talking about the first time they come in. Mm. Now, not the 10th time, because then you've established a relationship. They know what to expect. And when you see them make the most, those mistakes and you are encouraging and you say, oh, no, this is how it goes. You're, you're doing the right thing. I don't judge your quality by what the ball is doing. Mm. I, said that, I said, if I see something wrong in your technique, I'll mention it if it really needs to be fixed. But if it doesn't, I'm just, just swing. You're doing great. Missing's part of learning. Mm. You have to miss. In fact, the more mistakes you make, the better you're going to get. Mm -hmm. 100%. So you have to get rid of that perfectionism. Totally. Because that's going to get in your way. And you, it gets it, first of all, it gets in the way of your enjoyment, number one, I think. Kevin, I mean, to do that at a young age is invaluable because I've seen young and old, I've seen kids, and I'm saying this to give perspective, I've seen kids play at a very high level. That applies even then. Because if you feel like you make a mistake or things are not going well, first of all, it could be simply because you just got distracted or you got nervous or you're worrying about something. And that is like a, a quick fix if you treat it that way. Oh, I'm sorry. I got, you know, I, I got distracted by looking at something or thinking about the outcome of the match. I just had to stop doing that, get back into my flow and be more relaxed and mm -hmm. also intense but relaxed. And that doesn't require an overhaul of my entire tennis game. No. And so for you to help them to feel at ease, it's not a threat that I made a mistake. It's not going to activate my anxiety as in this is the worst thing ever. Because when the anxiety comes on, your focus gets skewed. That's what anxiety does. It skews your attention to something that is not going to be very helpful to you to get back into your flow. And You have to be allowed to make a mistake. And as a coach... When you see the player make the mistake, if you know they're on the right path, it's okay to make the mistake. Say, no, no, just, just like say you're working on the serve. Just say, no, just toss up another one. You know what you're doing. I don't need to, you know, keep talking mm -hmm. to you yeah. because it's a distraction from their learning. Right. You have to make the mistake. You have to, there's already self-dialogue going on in uh, a player's mind, mm -hmm. an athlete's mind, right? There's always self-dialogue. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful what you say, not to interrupt what, unless they're saying something negative, they might be saying the right thing. They need to experience that. Now, as a coach, you try to help them overcome an obstacle that they're facing, but you don't want to present an obstacle. I love that. I love you know, that. you don't want to present an obstacle. Uh, so you want to, you know, the, the, the best thing you can do as a coach is you can accelerate their learning curve mm -hmm. as, as a you know, a student, you want to you want to bring your athlete along so that they can do better, mm -hmm. hopefully quicker, but not in an anxious way, in a fun way. Totally, that's such a great point. And and essentially, you're helping them to build trust in your relationship as a coach and them as a player, but also building trust in themselves, right? Because I think that's another another aspect of humanity right now that sometimes we're lacking is having trust in ourselves to be able to make a mistake and recover. I just taught my um, three-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old goddaughter this weekend about 
how we recover from situations that don't always go as planned. You mean you mean like <laughs> what to do after whoops? Yeah, after a whoops, after <laughs> after a big emotional moment, right? Like what do you do with yourself? I, I you know, we see whoops. we see a lot of adults, you know, especially, you know, maybe in politics these days making these big mistakes, but it's like okay, a mistake's going to happen. Right. We can call it out and name it, but what do we do afterwards? I think is really what matters the most. And that recovery period, especially as an athlete, especially as an athlete, um, you know, on a court, sometimes by themselves, that's the most important part. I, that's actually what I love about watching tennis. I love the, the grace and the athleticism of it, but I also love to watch how the players respond when they don't make the point that they're looking for when they do make an error or something goes wrong or not as expected, I always like to watch how mm. they respond and if, or if they don't recover, because it's so fascinating to mm. me. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember taking classes from Jim Lair in sports psychology. You've probably heard of Jim Lair, mm -hmm. right? But, you know, and he has all these steps and things that players would go through. But, you know, the, the biggest thing is, you know, you want to, you don't want to be riding the emotional, when you get into higher level sports, because I think emotions are good in mm -hmm. sports. Totally. It's hard to be a robot. I mean, you're, you're playing sports. I think it has a lot more to do with music or anything else because you get excited by it. You know, you're excited to listen to that great song. You're excited to be out there competing. It's exciting. Love it. Totally. Right? It's exciting. Totally. So how can you be excited and not have an emotion? When that energy flows. How can you be excited yeah. about something and not have an emotion? Yes. So the way is to channel that emotion yes. into... What is it? Our energies, our life energy, our what, what do you call it? Our mind, our body, Depending our on emotions. Who you everything <laughs> goes into that one thing uh, without being um, destroyed by that thing where we put a, a some sort of limitation on it. Yes. We don't want to be limited by our emotion, right? We don't want that to limit us. We want that to fuel us, but not to limit us. Totally. Mm. Yeah. And to be, yeah, to be like excited. fear is an emotion for sure. So if you can't play tennis because you're afraid of you're losing your opponent or losing for your team or, or you're not going to be good enough, mm -hmm. then if that emotion can control what you do, then you've now let fear dictate what's going to be your decision, which is not a good way to do it. You don't want to let fear, you know, fear is good if, you know, the bridge is broken and you can see if you drive your car over it, that that's good fear. <laughs> yes. That's, that's common sense. That's fighting or Flight or flight, of, yes. yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> but you don't want that in life uh, to everything you're going to do because you're not going to be able to get where you want to go. No, so. yeah. When you think of the future, something you have a goal. Like you said, there's nothing wrong with having a goal. You want to feel motivated and inspired, but you can begin to think you have to control everything along the way, along mm -hmm. the path. And this whole podcast is about you can't control everything, mm. you know. And when you begin to think, oh, I have to control what that coach thinks of me. I have to control this aspect or that aspect things that you can't control along the way of your journey, then you become anxious and everything is a threat. Everything's like, oh, if this doesn't go well, it's going to ruin what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, as you get older, you get perspective about that. You know, the best thing you can do is understand how you want to show up and to develop yourself. I remember the first lesson I had with you, you commented on um, how when I was uh, engaging with you, you commented, I really appreciate how open you are to just learning what I'm saying and implementing it immediately. Um, I remember that very distinctly because that shows what a great coach you are, you know, because we can work collaboratively. Like just, you know, just give me some instruction. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be receptive. I'm not going to have an ego. 
I just want to, and you know, as a sports psychologist too, like I could have had an ego, like, oh, I got to prove to Kevin like that I'm mentally tough or I have great tennis skills. I'm like, no, I want well, to get to know have this good, You actually are a good player. You have, you have, well, you have good tennis skills, first of all. Thank you, Kevin. But uh, you, you, to be willing to improve, you know, and accept what someone else says or to listen to it, uh, that's just a good feature to have, an attribute to have as a human being. Uh, because if you're willing, you know, you're willing to listen to others or look at uh, other perspectives, that's how you grow, right? If you were limited, you would, you would live in your world and you would be quite happy there, right? It's, if you wanted to be limited, you could choose to be limited and that's okay for you. But if you don't want to be limited, you could say, I don't want to be limited. I want to see, I, I think there's something better out there and I want to go for that. Now, exactly where's it going to be? You were talking about the path to get there and to control every coach and all that on the way. 80% of success is showing up, mm-hmm. right? Show up. You know, what's the other one that Bill Belichick said? Do your job. Mm. Yeah. Do your job, you know? And you can control outcomes. You can do your best to control an outcome. You can, at the end of the day, you already know you can only control yourself. Mm-hmm. So you, you give the best effort you can do in life or on a tennis court. And then you see where where it goes. It's okay. For listeners out there, we're here with life lessons with Kevin Peace. <laughs> I mean, you're you're sharing so much more than just um, about your role and your experience as a tennis tennis coach, which I think apply to all aspects of life. But I, I want to go back to this idea of you know what you quoted Bill Belichick: do do your role, do your job. I actually think young people sometimes have a hard time recognizing what their role tends to be. You know, sometimes they they go into a a sport, especially in their mindset or even athletics, or I'm sorry, even academics, where they think that their role is just to be the best, to do the best, to get the A's, to win the, the matches or the competitions or whatever they're participating in. And I think that a lot of this process gets lost of, of how we get to that point. And we've talked about this before on the, on the podcast, but going back to what you had said about, you know, you were trying out for a baseball team as an 11 year old, 11, right? Mm-hmm. 12, and I think 12. it was at the time. Yeah. So as a young person and, and you're getting feedback that, you know, if you can't make a change right away, and we already have we're, so many we're pitchers. We're cutting you, and we did. We're cutting you, and yep. we did. Yeah, but instead and of— And at that time, that was, you know, a big deal. You're, yeah, you're, totally. you're a 12-year-old boy. You're in your, you're in your neighborhood. Uh, it's a competitive team. Mm-hmm. It's the cool thing to make mm-hmm. in your little group, right? you got to make the team. We have too many pitchers. And you're, and you're athletic. So what am I going to do? <laughs> what am I going to do now? What am I? I mean, I didn't want to play— right field because that would mean I'd have to catch a fly ball. I could get hurt. <laughs> you know, I, that ball could come down and hit me in the head. Flying projectiles. Uh, I, mean, I, was, I was just a pitcher. I didn't want to be in the outfield. I didn't even like hitting that much. I just wanted to pitch. Yeah, yeah. So funny as I got into tennis that, you know, serving became my best shot. Oh, that's so funny. You know, so without a doubt, you know, I'm a lefty and the serve is, um, you know, I'm sort of a one-hit wonder. That way, that's probably way above average. That's one way to win a match. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> if a ball doesn't come back, I can hold serve. <laughs> I, if I can play my cards right, I might not have to hit a forehand or a backhand. I'll just win all my serves, get to a tiebreaker, and pray my opponent double faults. <laughs> I take the set, 7-6, I'm good. <laughs> I don't have to hit a forehand or a backhand. I figured it out. Some people have made a living like that. Ivo Karlovic on the tour. He's like 6'10". He's basically, he gets into a tiebreaker every match. 
none of the guys on the tour want to hit with him because he doesn't hit, you know, I guess he didn't have a very classic rally, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the guy serves at 145 miles an hour. I think he owns the highest speed. Can you imagine getting wow. hit by a serve at 156? I've played against a serve kid that worked for me. His name was Ryan Livesay. He served at 133. Wow. It hit me in the chest. And I was back at, I was back at the curtain 20 feet back. Wow. I was like, you mean he hit you back that far? <laughs> yeah, but it was on me like a, it was like a cobra strike. You just, it was like, you know, it's like, whoa. 133 miles an hour. Can you imagine a, a pitch coming 140? No. My goodness gracious. I mean, we're talking, isn't this like muscle velocity? Yeah. Now, you know, I mean, like like the pros in baseball, the ball can go, what is it, a good picture? I mean, the high pitch is like 105. It's around there. It's like 106, right? I mean, that's yeah. crazy fast. Yeah, yeah. But can you imagine, you know, adding another 30, 40 miles an hour to that? No, oh, I can't. But but I think, you know, I don't know if you were doing this back at 11, 12 years old, but like somehow you had a reflection and an opportunity to pivot, yeah. which I think is so important. And I think that, you know, being able to give yourself some space from the emotion that's going to come up, especially when something you love doesn't work out the way you wanted it to, to be able to step back and be like, all right what am I going to do with this? And to be able to pivot into tennis, which, you know, maybe that was your trajectory. The universe had a plan that we didn't even uh, know didn't, about. I, but. I mean, my mom hit with me a little bit in elementary school. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, I, she barely knew the rules. I think we just hit back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that was my exposure. We played badminton out in the yard, yeah. you know, at cookouts. I mean, that, that was the experience of my, you but that's kind of, that probably goes made back a difference, to what we were talking yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. Some yeah, background, yeah. background experiences. But it's so cool. I, I, and just to, to wrap that up, the, the idea up is like when we give space to reflect, and I think as coaches, as therapists, I think that's really at the root of our work is to be able to give individuals space to reflect on what happened. Oh, yeah. And think about, you know, okay, what's next? Again, going back to the recovery, going back to the learning components of it, to be able to give a little bit of space, a little bit of perspective, and then, you know, acknowledge the options. I can, I can tell you, Lex, like uh, working with athletes too, like we'll have conversations and I'll, and I'll ask them, like, did you talk to your coach about this or did you have time to like process this? And a lot of times the answer is uh, no, because things move so quickly in life and like, you know, you have clinics and you're kind of moving through training and stuff and to have the space to reflect and to talk openly in in a a non-threatening way is so valuable. Uh, It's just so valuable to process things. And a lot of times, you know, you can kind of help guide them, as you said. Um, but Kevin, I, I want to, um, you have a wealth of experiences and, and like, uh, stories and stuff. Do you have any, um, just like along the way, even people you've spoken to or observed or, uh, had interactions with that really stuck with you in terms of, uh, could have been funny story. could have been, you know, some wisdom you gained from observing people and stuff like that in the world of tennis. Do you have any things that stand out to you that you can share with the audience? Well, I feel fortunate. I've had a few lucky experiences in life with tennis to meet some really great people. Uh, I was a young pro at the age of 23. I just started off in Falmouth, and I was at the USPTR convention in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, which, by the way, has the most tennis courts per capita or per population (laughs) in the world. Mm. It's like a golf and tennis mecca. Mm. Um, I don't know if I'd want to go live there, but it's it's, it's nice to visit. but uh, Arthur Ashe was there. Wow. Well, and so I met Arthur, and he was with Dennis Vandermeer, who was the president and founder of the USPTR. And, you know, Arthur uh, helped lead the way 
to the, what we call the modern era of tennis, where he brought he he brought he escorted uh, the amateurs into the pros, basically, um, and and created the new modern pro tour as we know it today. So um, you know, one of the quotes that Arthur said, and it's it's at the U.S. Open. It's up it's up on one of the the um, cement walls. I believe it's a monument. It says, you know, by what we um, we get, we make a living. By what we give, we make a life. Mm, and and uh, so, you know, that Arthur, although I never knew him really personally, I had met him, I felt like he was something special on this planet. Um, and it, it, certainly, you know, for black people in sports. Um, but beyond that, I think he's just a great human being, what he's done for people. Mm-hmm. and a vision he had um, for tennis and, and for the world. So I would say Arthur Ashe would be right up there and one of the most important people um, I ever met. Um, another one is Nick Bolateri. Um Nick uh, founded um, the Nick Bolateri Tennis Academy in Bradenton, Florida. And uh, I had met Nick, first I had met Nick probably, I would say, 1984, I was at the USTA Teachers Conference in New York at the Rockefeller Center, Rockefeller uh, Center, and we, he put on a, an excellent exhibition on coaching mm. and players, and one thing I remember about Nick is he always got his players to get, he got the most out of the players mm. um, in, in, in a very work-hard environment. Mm-hmm. But never a a positive hard work environment, which is amazing. Mm. You know, he got the most out of his players. And it wasn't just about tennis, it was about life. Mm. He said the skills that we're teaching here, Mm. this type of attitude is the attitude you need to have to go into life, Mm. which is a winner's attitude, you know, and determination and motivation and to... Even though you're sick and you don't feel good, you still go out there and you give your best effort mm-hmm. and you can find a way to win. And that was so impressive to me. I was so motivated by hearing him talk about what it is to have a winning attitude. Mm. And it, it was yes to win the match. It was yes to improve. But it was more about the the battle we face within ourselves mm. to nothing, win that battle. Yeah, nothing like sports to experience that. Yeah, so I'm going, to, I'm going down a kind of a deep thinking philosophical road, which is more my... Ben, I wish I could come out. I could, I need, you need a funny story, probably, right? You need a funny story? I'm trying to, a funny tennis story? Well, I want to really say one thing real quick, though, about what you said. Because sports yeah. really does make people vulnerable. And I think this is a, uh, uh, maybe an under, uh, underestimated part when we watch athletes. You know, um, boy, I just did an interview on WBUR about like how sports gambling affects the athlete's experience. And one of the things I talked about is that athletes are human. And I don't think us watching athletes perform, we forget that they are human, (laughs) right? I mean, we're like, oh, they're a piece to a puzzle or they're just on a team or they're just like a video game character or something, but they're human beings. And so your point about that, you know, that sports is a vulnerable place to be when you're performing in front of people and you're putting yourself on the line and you're, you know, you're down zero five uh, in a set and, you know, you're feeling horrible about what's happening, like... I, I think we we lose touch with how courageous you have to be as an athlete. And, um, and you know, it, it really can bring out the best in you if you can have the support to learn how to do that. 
and it could translate into other aspects of your life. I can understand because when you're in those intense competitive situations, have you noticed that the champions tend to thrive mm-hmm. or raise their level again, mm-hmm. seemingly? And it's like you say to that person about that person, how many levels do you have? Mm-hmm. Like I, like that, I didn't believe that was possible. Yeah. That you just took what the bar was and you raised it again. And the message though is maybe we're not always going to raise the bar like that person did at that venue, but we can raise our bar, mm-hmm. right? Can we not, right? So if you can remove somehow those obstacles that we face in our head mm-hmm. so that when you're outperforming, it flows. Mm-hmm. Like it does, like say if a ball is just out and your opponent has hit it and then you take a free swing at it and you hit the best shot of your life and you'll say, how the devil could I just, or, or the person serves, they hit a great serve and you swing and you make a great return and you go, wow. And then they hit the next one that's not half as good on a second and you miss it and you go, how can I be the same person? Mm-hmm. You know, where, where is this coming? It's got to be self-talk or it's got to, it, it has to be something inside us that that psychological component that some people have the ability to, as you, as you say, maybe transcend easier than others, but that doesn't mean we all can't do it. Mm-hmm. Right? 100%, yeah. yeah. Right. So if, as a coach, as a psychological uh, sport coach, if you can get people into that state, that happy place, the happy Gilmore, <laughs> right? It was one of my favorite. I watched that movie. I'm going, I'm, I'm rooting for Happy Gilmore. This this crazy movie. I'm looking at Adam Sandler, like I'm thinking he's God. I'm thinking this is me in my way. You know, it's like no one. You know, here he comes. He's climbing up. We all like to see the this this person. Don't we all like to see a winner climb the way up? It's like yeah. so much more rewarding to see someone come out of nowhere and just steal the show, especially after they've had roadblocks or something. We're just rooting for that, you know? So, um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great thing. And I, I do think it transcends even tennis. It's a bigger thing in life where you can, um, you know, see that it's a challenging situation, but there's an opportunity there to, to rise and, and to take that and to make it a beautiful thing. Amazing. You know, I, uh, you, you just made a comment. I'll make one more comment about this. I'll let you tell your funny story. Um, uh, you know, when I work with people who have experienced trauma in, in therapy, because I do therapy and I do sports psychology too. And one of the things that I have said from time to time, and this kind of just came out uh, spontaneously is, you know, you're working so hard to overcome and to, you know, work through this trauma. And I bet if you were a movie character and everybody who's in the stands or in the seats just watching their, your movie play out, what do you think they'd be thinking as they're watching you working through this trauma? And I completely helped them to shift their perspective to, they're all like on the edge of their seats rooting for you. And that transcends wow. from shame and guilt to, oh, what that I experienced and, you know, how you feel about yourself to, no, like this is, this is a whole new frame of mind to empower you to feel like you're doing something admirable that people will would if they if they if they only knew what you've been through and how you're working through it people would just like their hearts would drop they would feel so inspired by you and that makes people feel like their life has meaning wow wow that's incredible stuff um totally i i feel that you know if you can managing life is an art form <laughs> 
And if you have the right mindset, you can achieve what you want. You And you, without being cliche, you have to think positively. What other choice is there? Really, if you don't think positively, what is your other choice? Mm-hmm. Think negatively? Yeah. Well, how far is that going to go? Mm-hmm. How far is negative going to go? So you better think positively. And do you have to do the positive thing, which is the hard thing. It's right. not the easy thing. Right. The easy thing will give you the hard result. Mm. Right? The hard work gives you a better result. Is it? And I'm defining success in a broad way here. Of course. You know, I'm not, yep. I'm not touching that. Yep. Your success. I'm not <laughs> telling you what I think success is. That's up for you to decide. For sure. Yes. But for you to get what you want, for you to be successful, then you're going to have to put in hard work at that. It does not come easy. It's not going to show up at your door. So, and what, what causes that? It's action, right? It's action. There's nothing better than action to, to cure that. I always say that <laughs> oftentimes the greatest lessons and the greatest memories are, they come from the struggle. They come from the challenge. They come from the hard work. It's really, it's really fascinating. It takes and a lot of courage to, to go inside of yourself. To your point too, I have to make mention that I have a, an elementary school student that I'm working with who's doing a capstone project for his year. Wait and wait a minute, a capstone project? Capstone project of fifth grade, yeah. Oh, wait a minute, isn't that something that you do like when you're in college uh, trying to get your graduate degree? Semantics, it's all semantics. The capstone Kevin. in I know. fifth grade. I know, that's why I bring it up. But No wonder Gwen's going to college anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they're, pe- they're, pe- they're peaking in fifth grade. But, Capstone. Yeah, I know. So th- this this kid oh, had geez. a really brilliant question that he was curious about. And I'm mentioning it because Jerry was involved in this process too. He said, how do crowds impact athletes? And, and to the, the point of this Ooh. conversation, right? Ooh. So he, you know, wow. I said- A, I said, a fifth grader came up with this? Fifth grader. Uh-huh. Uh, fifth, has this been studied? A little bit. We found a little research this is a, on it. This, this fifth grader may have something in social psychology coming up, well, right? Well, he's a very talented kid. He sounds like it. And <laughs> even better, he got to interview Jerry to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the mental side of it. And I bring this up because, you know, when you think about that inner voice that you were mentioning and thinking about how when we project these thoughts or this narrative about ourselves. It sometimes dictates how we perform. And to Jerry's point about, you know, thinking about the crowd cheering you on, you know, there's external factors like an actual crowd that can impact how you feel and how Mm -hmm. you perform, which can lift you up and give you those energy, the energy and the motivation, Mm -hmm. or can sometimes get in your head and make you question how you are. But I think it all goes back to what we were talking about before. And when you have when you build a trust in yourself that you've had that agency to develop the skills, to work hard, but you also have faith in yourself. And I've mentioned this before on the show, but, and you have this, uh, this trust in something outside of ourselves that things are going to work out like when baseball didn't work out and it propelled you into tennis, that things are going to end up on a path that they probably are supposed to. There's, there's this, uh, I don't know, outworldly idea. I don't even know if that's the right term to think about this whole process and the culmination of putting all these pieces together. Cause it's never just one thing. It's always a combination of things. It's, it's community, it's family, it's support, it's coaching, guidance, mentorship. And then the, the feeling of agency and, and 
developing your own inner narrative. And, you know, I have an athlete that I work with who says, I need to be hard on myself. That's what pushes me. And I'm like, well, to what expense is that voice pushing you or knocking you down? We want to find like somewhere in between that whole Goldilocks effect of like not too much, not too little, mm. the just right. And to your point before, you know, like just right is different for different people at different times. And we need to listen to that. We need to pay attention to it because I think that's what fuels success in people's life. And to the it's point of shooting our, threes for that extra two hours yeah, at the garden yeah, after the that practice swish. is over. That's 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 what's gonna do it. But Kevin, I mean I, I and already have the talent. Yeah. You guys said that if someone made a lot of three pointers, they get recruited to the NBA. I try to implement my sports psychology stuff, which I wish I knew when I was in high school and younger. Mm. And I made 19 threes in a row. And you saw it. I didn't (laughs) hear any coaches calling my name. (laughs) You made 19 threes in a row? I sure did. He he was in a competition with one of our good friends. It was awesome. To see how many threes you can get. Or a shooting competition. I have a video of it. Yeah, I've never done that in my life. But I I implement the things that I teach now that I actually know that now that that I'm older. But um, Kevin, I want... um, we, we do have to wrap up because we okay. want to try to keep a uh, sure. uh, time sure, limit sure. on our episodes, but we can talk forever because you are uh, you're one of the best people to chat with for sure. Do you have any uh, parting stories or words um, that you can think of for, for our audience? In terms of tennis or their life? How about both? I feel oh. like they're one and the same. Tennis. Well, I used to run this program called Tennis for Life. Mm. Right. Wait, you're being serious? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I used to run that Tennis for Life. Um, it was a program that I ran in town, and I, you know, would introduce people to tennis and teach them how to play. So I, ca- I called it Tennis for Life. Mm. And they said, so how many people would say to me, well, how many lessons is this going to take before, you know, I can play tennis? My answer would be thousands. <laughs> thousands. Mm. You're, you're, it's... It's a life lesson. It's for life. You don't, it's not like you, you take it and then you're done. It's a journey. Yeah. You know, you, 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 you experience it. So I think, you know, be careful what you do, what you choose for experiences, make good choices that you, that you would picture be yourself being happy doing possibly for the rest of your life, because those are the decisions that are going to, you know, impart some sort of uh, effect of your life that's either good or bad and you want to make the right choice. I think tennis is a great choice for people because it's elegant. It, it's a form of movement, expression, mm-hmm. uh, social, you know, it has a lot of great uh, physical components to it. It's good for your body. I guess I'm selling tennis right now. Of course. Um, but don't take it too seriously. You know, mm-hmm. you, I mean, it's one thing if you're, you're playing, you want to become a division one athlete and you're playing for scholarships. That's a little different. That's not, for the most of us, that's not going to be the case. No, of course right? not. So, uh, you know, you do it because you enjoy it. So that's that's what I'd say. Do it because you love it, you know. And, uh, you know, use the life lessons that you find in tennis. You can apply them to life, mm. right? Anything you can think of in terms of you've got to get better at this, you got to get, sure, you're always going to get better. But uh, do it because you enjoy it, and this is the path that you want to take. Well, we're grateful that you are a tennis coach for people that cross your paths because you do make it enjoyable. And uh, that's a special, special thing. And we're so happy that you found tennis at an early age and can share that uh, not only with your family, but with us and the community. 
Um, and uh, I remember you said something very funny at uh, one point. You said, you know, if you want to be the best ten- tennis player in the world, you got to do five things, everybody. Five things. <laughs> Number one, yeah. eat well. Number two, sleep well. Number three, work out and take care of your body. Uh, number four, you know, um, like uh, practice. But you said number five, quit your job and play tennis all day long. <laughs> Jerry, I remember that. I remember those five <laughs> things that I told you, and I'm I'm surprised that I forgot them. Um, but it's true. Uh, if if you really want to get get better at something, you've got to really look at how you spend your day, and you've got to skew it towards what you really want to do yeah. right now because life's too short. You know, if you really like something, start planning now to do more of that and do less of the thing you don't like. Yeah. yeah. Right. You don't want to do, you don't, in the rest of your life, you don't want to be doing more of what you don't like. Yeah. Do more of what you like. Right. Because you're going to be better at it if you don't like it. Who wants to do something they don't like to do? I don't. Yeah. And, and you do things you love with your family too, which is tennis. And that's a really cool thing as well. So we can mix and match things we love and bring them together, which that's is what true. tennis does. That's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, there was one point, you know, I'll, I guess I'll end with this, that, you know, there was a point I wanted to be a highly ranked national player. Uh, but now I just want to be ranked in my household. <laughs> you know, if I could be in the top five of my house, then I'm good. And I've got like three ahead of me right now. So, you know, I got I guess, I guess some work to do if I want to beat those <laughs> top players. That's great. That's yeah. great. That's great. I love it. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. That's great. Thanks, Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun here no, today. That's great. Thank yes. you. It's great. Hope you don't hit traffic on the way back down. To the no, it's going to be a smooth <laughs> sail going the other way. Yep. Thank you. We'll see you on the court soon. See you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Read Connected podcast. Please remember that this is a podcast intended to educate and share ideas, but it is not a substitute for professional care that may be beneficial to you at different points of your life. If you are in need of support, please contact your primary care physician, local hospital, educational institution, or support staff at your place of employment to seek out referrals for what may be most helpful for you. Ideas shared here have been shaped by many years of training, incredible mentors, research, theory, evidence-based practices, and our work with individuals over the years, but it's not intended to represent opinions of those we work with or who we are affiliated with. The Reconnected podcast is hosted by siblings Alexis Reed and Dr. Gerald Reed. Original music is written and recorded by Gerald Reed. Editing and recording was done by Cybersound Studios. If you want to follow along on this journey with us, the Reconnected podcast will be releasing new episodes every two weeks each season. So please subscribe for updates and notifications. Feel free to also follow us on Instagram at Podcast. That's Read Connect Ed podcast and Twitter at Read Connect Ed. We are grateful for you joining us and look forward to future episodes. In the meanwhile, be curious, be open, and be well. <music> <laughs>